morning, Baby Glen Church. Good to be here with you this morning. I have uh, something to read to you this morning. If you recall, our international workers, Mike and Mary Ann Botting, we told you their story recently about how they lost their home in a fire. And uh, we put a call out to all of you to, to give to help them to rebuild. And uh, by last count, we raised over $6,000 for them. And I, um, I passed this on to them. And they wanted to share these words with you this morning. Dear brothers and sisters, thank you for your outpouring of support following the trial our family went through in January. We have now settled in a rental apartment and the Lord has blessed us with wonderful neighbors, including children for Elias to play with, which had been our prayer before the fire. We believe God has more in mind than what he's already done and we're seeking him in this period of Lent to make his will clear to us before rebuilding. We feel Emmanuel International Uganda, which is the agency that they're with, is in a time where strategic decisions need to be made to lay the groundwork for the future. Please continue praying. We'll hear his voice and know how to put your gifts to work according to his design. We have felt God's presence and support in such a tangible way through his saints in this season. Thank you, and God bless you for covering us at this time. So on behalf of Mike and Mary Ann Botting, uh, I want to say thank you to all of you for your tremendous generosity uh, in responding to them in their time of need. God is indeed at work and on the move in their lives, and by extension, he is at work um, in us and through us as well. And so we praise you and thank you for that. I uh, want to thank you also for your generosity and giving when it comes to the Haiti trip that we are sending uh, some folks on. Uh, you're going to get to meet them a little later on in the service. Um, but we've raised, um, in just in that giving, a little over half of what it is that we need to go on this trip. We are going to go regardless of uh, how much money comes in or not. Um, but uh, you guys have been great, and we're excited to, to move forward with that. So thank you. Um, why don't you let us, uh, let's take a moment, let's pray for all of that, shall we? Let's pray. God, we are grateful for you, grateful for the, the way that you open up our hearts in generosity, God, generosity that we can know only because of the generosity you first showed us through your son, Jesus Christ. And so, God, uh, I thank you for my, my sisters and my brothers here, uh, this family of faith. Um, who is just putting their eggs in this basket that you are at work here at Bayview Glen. Uh, you are at work here amongst us uh, and participating in that work through prayer and through giving. Um, as we prepare our hearts now to receive your word, God, I pray that you, would, um, that you would open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts to see you and to hear you and to know you uh, this morning. God, as we do the, the, the hard work of digging deep into your life, the life that you have for us, life in its fullness, life abundantly. God, would you just, um, would you make our hearts like butter as the hot knife of your word um, melts through it, that we would come to know you in a new and fresh way today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, I want to take this moment to just publicly acknowledge and thank Pastor Andy Cherry for the tremendous job that he does here. Um, I don't think um, we fully can comprehend. I see him at work, and I don't fully comprehend just the amount of uh, commitment, the amount of effort, the amount of time that he puts in to choosing 
the songs that he does, preparing um, this space and this place for worship for all of us on Sunday. And um, he does that with such, uh, again, a sensitivity. He does that uh, with such a, um, just being attuned to his craft. Uh, and the songs that he chooses, these, these worship songs, the lyrics, they speak the truth to us. They speak the truth to us in a powerful way, and so many of these songs come from Scripture. That first song, Overcome, uh, we see in John 16, 33, that, um, that, that Jesus says that um, in, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so that's taken right from Scripture, uh, that our Father, we, we just pray the Lord's Prayer together in song. That comes straight from Matthew chapter 9. Um, 10,000 Reasons comes from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. These lyrics speak truth, and we learn of the truth of who God is through his word. That last song, we didn't sing all the verses, but how great is our God there's a line in the verse that says, Father, Spirit, Son, the Godhead three in one. This, uh, this Trinitarian God that we know and that we love who has revealed himself to us. I was gonna do a little bit of unpacking of the Trinity here today, but then I thought, you know what? I've served my time. Pastor Lucas is coming back soon. I'm just gonna leave the heavy theological lifting to him. I'll let him teach you about the Trinity. But what I want you to know today is this, that God wants to be known by you. He wants to be known, and he wants to be known by you. He has revealed himself to us through his word and through his scriptures. He wants to be known by you. And we'll focus on two areas today. We'll focus on the gift, the gift, and we'll focus on the giver. The gift and the giver. And we'll come to see through the scripture that the gift of God is eternal life, eternal life in his son, and that the giver of that eternal life is Jesus, the Son of God. And so we are in John chapter 10 right now. If you want to turn there, um, you can do that in the Bible that you may or may not have brought with you. There's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. If you have a phone with a Bible app on it, feel free to, to take that out and, and turn it on. We are in the Gospel of John chapter 10, uh, and we'll be looking at the second half beginning in verse 22. So why don't we go and turn there now. It'll be on the screens behind me, so if you want to follow along here, uh, you are free to do that. So John chapter 10, verse 22. It says, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. So if you remember what we talked about last week and th this picture of uh, this timeless truth about Jesus' identity, him as the door of the sheep and the shepherd of the sheep or the good shepherd, um, it, was, it was kind of, you know, out there. It wasn't couched in time. Now we come back into a moment and a place in history. Jesus in his early ministries, his ministry is in Jerusalem at the time of the Feast of Dedication, a very specific time. The Feast of Dedication is what we know today in the modern day as Hanukkah. So Hanukkah is actually the, um, the celebration of the rededication of the temple. Okay? Uh, it was rededicated after it was liberated from a foreign ruler, foreign emperor, a, the Seleucid king. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes IV. So Antiochus Epiphanes, when he took over Judea, he actually uh, eradicated a worship in the temple. And in eradicating the worship, he also instilled worship 
to Zeus, and he actually put an altar in the temple uh, and sacrificed pigs to Zeus in the, met- and, um, in the middle of this temple. And so to be under the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes was already bad enough, but for, to see him desacralize this uh, the temple was just too much for the Jews. And so they rose up in revolt. They rose up in revolt, and after a period of a number of years, they were able to wrest control of the temple back from Antiochus Epiphanes. And so the Feast of Dedication, also known as the Festival of Lights, known to us as Hanukkah, is the celebration of the liberation and the rededication of this temple. And this is where uh, the Jewish people will light menorahs to celebrate uh, Hanukkah. And so it is also in the time of winter because that is when Hanukkah is celebrated. Uh, this happened, the, the rededication of the temple happened on the 25th of the month of Chislev, which is in wintertime, which is, uh, occurs in, the month of, in and around the month of December. And so this timeless truth of Jesus' identity has now been couched very clearly in a specific time, in a specific place, in the second portion of chapter 10 because he is speaking to a very specific group of people. And, he, and Jesus has a very specific outcome that he's looking toward. So that's verse 22. Let's look at verse 23. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So this is very interesting detail that, that John has brought to us, that Jesus was walking in the temple. He has come back to the temple. He has come back to the place of worship, the seat of Judaism. And he is now walking in the colonnade of Solomon. The colonnade of Solomon was on the outer part of the temple. It was a, a, a covered, um, it was open, but it was covered. Um, and it was a long walkway. Um, but there, the picture that John is painting for us is that during this feast of dedication, during this time when the Jews are celebrating the liberation of the temple, you have Jesus right there in their midst, proclaiming that he is the son of God, that he is the sent one, that he is their savior. And he is walking through there, and he is preaching and proclaiming a, a very different kind of liberation to them. And so there's this juxtaposition between what is happening in the feast of dedication and what Jesus is saying as he walks down this colonnade of Solomon. Verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? You are the Christ. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now we have to remember that when Jesus is speaking to these Jewish, this group of Jews, um, they aren't all against him. They're not all rejecting him. There is a group of them who genuinely want to know who he is. And so you can read this in two ways. The first way is that please, just, just put it to us so that we can understand. We want to know, are you the Messiah? Are you the promised one? Should we wait for somebody else? They want to know from their hearts. But there's another group who's, who wants Jesus to condemn himself. They want him to say, yes, I am the Messiah. And they would say, there is no way that you can be because of X, Y, Z. We have already rejected you. But now that you have said it, we can string you up. And so they want him to say it plainly so that he can con- condemn himself. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Jesus continues just to be patient and loving with these Jewish people. He does this in hopes to bring some of them to faith. If you remember from last week, Jesus talked about having his own flock and that he would call out of that flock, those are his very own, those who belong to him. 
And so amongst these Jewish people that he is talking to, he knows that there are some that are of his flock. And so he is in the midst of this. He is calling out to them. He is saying, listen to my words. I'm going to tell you this over and over again. And I pray and hope that you will understand. So please, will you listen to my words? And so even though Jesus doesn't say it explicitly, his words and his works bear witness about him. His words and his works bear witness about him. Verse 26, he says, but you do not believe because you are not a part of my flock. So here, very explicitly, he's talking to those who he knows are rejecting him and will continue to reject him regardless of what he says. Even if he told them plainly, Jesus know that they would not believe because they have not pieced together his sayings and his signs. His sayings and his signs point to the fact that Jesus is the sent one. He is the savior. He is the son of God. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Again, last week, Jesus was, was spoken this metaphor. He uses uh, the shepherd as a motif to reveal his identity as the door of the sheep and the good shepherd. And right now, see, so that last thing he said, he was speaking to the Jews he knows are, are gonna reject him. This is, he's speaking to the Jews that are of his flock. He is calling out to them again. He is saying, you know my voice, respond to me. They are of his flock. They may not know it yet, but he is imploring them to please listen and respond. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So the good shepherd's nourishment and his guidance and in protection, they all flow from this gift that he has to give them, the gift of eternal life a gift that only Jesus, the Son of God, can give. And not only does he give them eternal life, he says that they are secure in his hands, they are protected, they are taken care of, they are in the grip of his grace. They are in the hands of Jesus, safe and secure. In verse 29, he draws this parallel. He says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. Here, Jesus draws this direct line of the sheep in his own hands, with who, uh, which he has the power uh, to protect and save. He draws a direct line of the sheep in his own hands to the sheep in the Father's hands. The, sheep who is, the, the Father who is greater than all can hold them, and no one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. In the same way, no one will snatch them out of Jesus' hand. He is essentially saying, I am the Father, what? Our one. Verse 30, he says it as explicitly as he can here, I and the Father are one. So Jesus is, is claiming now equality with God. He is showing his divine nature. He says, I have sheep and, I will, and no one can grasp them out of my hand. I will protect them. And it's in the same way that the Father who is greater than all cares for the sheep and no one can snatch them out of his hand, we are the same. Oneness with the Father. Jesus has oneness with the Father in mind, in spirit, in purpose, and activity. They share one mind, they share one purpose, they share one spirit, and they share the same activity. 
Actually, any of us could say that. In, 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 in some senses, we can say we are one with God the Father in that way, right? Because as followers of Jesus Christ, as followers of God, we too should have his mind and his spirit and his purpose and his activity in the world. But when Jesus says this, he says this in a way that is different from everybody else, especially and specifically because of what came before it in this metaphor of the hands, saying that the sheep are in his hands, in his hands the same way they are in his father's. He is saying, I am uniquely one with God. I am the son of God. I am like God in essence, not simply in mind, spirit, purpose, and activity, but in essence. And so in verse 28, he says, I give them eternal life. He says, I give them eternal life. And so this gift that we have from God is eternal life. The gift of eternal life is what God has for us, and that is found in salvation. The gift of eternal life is found in salvation. And when we are saved, we come to know that we will exist forever in God's presence. Salvation in the life to come. Being in God's presence, fully loved, fully known, forever praising and glorifying him. But the salvation that we have in Christ is not only a future reality that we have, it's indeed something that we can enjoy and experience right here, right now. Salvation here on earth. Because salvation, this gift of God, is actually the abundant life that he has for us. If you recall from verse 10 in chapter 10 that we discussed last week, Jesus has come to give us life, life in all its fullness, life abundantly. And this life is experienced here and in the life to come. And when I was describing this abundant life last week, I used this phrase that the abundant life is a life of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. The gift of eternal life is in glorifying God and enjoying him forever. So I'm going to take a little moment to unpack this phrase. It might be familiar to some of you. You might think, oh man, you know what, I've heard that before. So this comes to us from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The Westminster Shorter Catechism. Go ahead and Google that when you go home a little later on. The Westminster Shorter Catechism. And this, was, this comes to us in circa 1646, 47. That's when it was written. And so a catechism or a catechesis was just the process by which the church, um, you know, back, back then, um, downloaded information about the faith to people, okay? So you've got the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism and this catechesis. So the Shorter Catechism was actually written for children. It was a way for the church to teach children about faith, about doctrine, about what it is that they ought to believe. And so this phrase, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, is actually the answer to a question. The cat, so the catechism took the form of a question and answer. And through these question and answers, these children would memorize them, they would, and then they would recite them to themselves and to each other in, in the hopes that the truth of God's word would sink down into their heart. And so the first and most famous question and answer um, or the, the, of the catechism is this. The question is, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? Of man. And so what that essentially means is, what, for what purpose did God create human beings? What is the ultimate reason for our existence, your existence and my existence, as we are created by God? The chief end of man 
The answer is that we would glorify God and enjoy him forever. That we would glorify God and enjoy him forever. Not only in this world, but in the next as well. Now, in the next, it's easy to glorify God and enjoy him. There's this beautiful picture in Revelation 19 where it talks about the, uh, the, the, the 24 elders and the living creatures, and they are before the throne of God, and they are forever worshiping him. They are singing praise to his name, and the multitudes are gathered around them, and they are all in one accord, in one voice, and in unison praising God, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Salvation belongs belongs to our God. And so in that moment, you can imagine that glorifying God and enjoying him are happening simultaneously and happening perfectly, right? In the moment where we, are, uh, where, where we hope to be one day as we, as we come into his presence to, to bring glory to his name, to sit in the very presence of God in proximity to him uh, and, 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 to, and to feel all the things that we will feel when we are in his presence, to dance before him and to give him the worship that he deserves, to give him glory that he deserves. And in glorifying, of course, we would be enjoying him because we are finally uh, in, in fulfillment with him in heaven. And so this the idea of glorifying and enjoying God at the same time is, is very uh, tangible and, and real when it comes to being in heaven because there's no other responsibilities, right? We, there's nothing else that we need to do and there's no sin. Everything is perfect. But here in this world, how do we bring these two things together? Because it would seem that glorifying God and enjoying him are actually very different things. Because we, when we think about how do we glorify God in this world, we ought to think we glorify him by worshiping. We glorify him by doing his work in the world, right? We focus on the things that faith demands of us. What does God desire of us in the walk of faith? We glorify him by making his name known in the world, by making him famous, right? By, um, by proclaiming the gospel to those around us, by seeking justice and seeking mercy, by being the salt and the light of the world. That is how we glorify God, right? And so there is this, this outward turning motion. We look outward into the world and that is how we glorify God. But to enjoy God seems like a very different prospect, a very different posture. Because to enjoy God, we, would, we enjoy where, where we sit, where we rest, where we simply bask in his presence and we receive from him where glorifying seems like a giving of ourselves enjoying seems feels more like a receiving of him and to enjoy god is to enjoy the gifts that he has that comes from the life of faith uh, forgiveness of sin uh, the faith that we have the joy that comes with it and we focus on the good things that flow from faith do we not uh, answered prayer we, we think about the needs that, we, that, that have been met. And that is more of the enjoyment of God uh, in this world that, that we, we would seem to, uh, seem to experience. And so there seems to be this antithesis between glorifying God and enjoying God. Because again, glorifying God is outward turn and enjoying God is inward turn. And so how do we in this life, as we look forward to uh, the heavenly life where we can do it perfectly, how do we reconcile these two things in this world? Well, what I would say is that 
um, to say that they're opposite is a bit of a false dichotomy because glorifying God and enjoying him are really uh, inseparable. They actually go hand in hand, even in this world. They are two sides of the same coin because you cannot glorify God if you are not enjoying him. And you cannot enjoy him without glorifying him. You cannot enjoy or glorify God without first knowing him. And here's the thing that brings the two pieces together. To glorify God and to enjoy him is to know him. And so the gift of eternal life that we have through Jesus Christ is experienced through knowing the giver. The gift of eternal life is experienced through knowing the giver. And we can know the giver in the way that um, God has revealed himself to us in his word, and again, most profoundly, through his son, Jesus Christ. And so the latter half of chapter 10 does just that. Jesus, it paints a picture of who Jesus is. And when we see Jesus, we see the Father. So let's look at verse 31. So the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. I love how... how John just lays this on us with a period, not even with an exclamation mark, right? It's just, yeah, the Jews just picked up stones to stone him. I want you to just picture this situation. Jesus has told them what he's told them. He's basically said, as clearly as he can, I, I am God, okay? He hasn't said it in those words, but he says, I and the Father are one, right? He's painted this picture of having the, the grip of his grace, upon his sheep is the same grip that the father has on them. So he and the father are equal. He's basically said that to the Jews. And so the Jews are livid. They are beside themselves, right? If it was a cartoon, their faces would be red and there would be smoke steaming from their, their heads, right? Why? Because they love God that much. They love God so much and they are so zealous for him. They cannot stand anybody claiming equality with him, especially a man, a person, that is insane. And so they are go, they're besides, and they picked up stones, and they are ready to stone. This is not a calm situation, right? This is as tense as it gets. And Jesus has been in this situation before, right? This is not the first time they've tried to stone him. And in other times when they've tried to stone him, what did he do? He slipped away like a ninja, right? Jesus doesn't do that this time. I want you to listen to this. Verse 32. Jesus answered them, I don't know in what reality picking up a stone to throw at somebody is, um, equals a question that they asked. I don't think that's the, I don't know how Jesus got there, but he has. So they picked up stones, they're about to throw it at him, and he answers them. And he says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Now, you have to read this. He, he's not saying this to be facetious. He's not saying this to mock them. He's not being smart-alecky when he's saying this. He is literally, he is saying this because he just, he loves them and he just, he just wants them to hear this. He is de-escalating the situation. He's just trying to calm things down. He's saying, will you listen to me, please? Because this is his last opportunity to reach those in his own flock. There are some among these Jews who are of his flock, and it's his last opportunity to reach them. You know what I love about this scene? This scene really reminds me of Jesus walking on water through the storm, right? Do you remember this? When the, the, 
when his disciples are traveling out by boat into the Sea of Galilee and a storm comes, and then all of a sudden they see Jesus walking calmly through the storm towards them. He is the Lord of the storm. He is the Lord of the stoning, apparently, as well. And so he walks in here, and he's just, let's calm this thing down. I am in control. All I want you to know is that I am who I say I am. Would you please hear me and listen to me? If you are of my flock, hear my voice. So verse 33, the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. And so they've de-escalated. They've dropped their stones and they are answering him. All right, there's a bit of dialogue now, which is, which is great. Jesus, the ultimate peacemaker. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? This is an interesting statement, right? So let me, let me explain that to you. Is it not written in your law? Jesus is kind of bringing things to their level, right? He's saying, These are, this is how you communicate, uh, and, and this is you know, how your minds work, so let me appeal to you. Let me appeal to the way that you think, and let me hopefully be able um, through this to show you once and for all I am who I say I am. So, this, the law saying, I said you are God's, this actually is Jesus quoting from Psalm 82. In Psalm 82, it says literally this, um, I said you are God's. Uh, and, and the God's with this little g that, that God is referring to in this psalm is the Jewish people, the people who are his representatives, the people who have been given his word. Okay? And so to, to have been the mediator of God's word, to be his representatives in the world, okay, is in essence to be God's is what Jesus is saying and what Psalm 82 says. And so, Psalm, uh, so verse 35 says, if he called them God's to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, verse 36, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, he's speaking about himself, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? So Jesus is going from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, look, God gave you the word and he made you his representatives and he called you gods. And now he has sent me, consecrated me, and as I have communicated to you that I am the word of God in the flesh, would you say to me that I am blaspheming simply because I call myself the son of God? I am the very word of God. 37 to 38. If I am not doing the works of the Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. This is nothing new. He, says, he said this before. But again, this final appeal to them. His words and his works bear witness to who he is. That he is one with the Father. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And all of this is so that he would be known. In this specific time and place, he wants to be known by the Jews that are of his flock. But for all of us, 
it says to us that God wants to be known personally. He wants to be known by you. All of what Jesus says and does reveals the person of the Father. It reveals the person of the Father. Now, our family got to spend some time in a Muslim country, the United Arab Emirates, and we spent about 18 months there. Got to know um, the culture, got to know the, the, the religion and the faith of Islam a little more. Um, they are very zealous uh, folk. Um, and they love to put on display how great and awesome they believe their God, Allah, to be. And one of the most ostentatious displays of this is in the Sheikh Zayed Grand Mosque in Abu Dhabi. Uh, I would encourage you, if you have a chance to visit Abu Dhabi, to visit this mosque. It is a sight to behold. Uh, reportedly, it costs over half a billion to create and to make and to build. Um, I actually think that the number is probably higher than that, but that's the reported amount. This, um, this monument to Allah spans over, 20, over 22 and a half football fields, NFL-sized football fields. That's how big it is. There is a carpet which is woven of a single piece, woven by hand, took two years to create. That is 60,000 square feet in size. The courtyard alone, when you step in, is 180,000 square feet. There is a giant dome that covers this, okay? It's probably as wide as it is high. It is as high as the Scotia Tower in the Toronto skyline, if, you're, if you know the Scotiabank Tower, downtown Toronto. It's as tall as that and probably as wide as well. This is an immense, immense building, okay? Uh, it, can, it can house and accommodate 40,000 worshipers at one time. 40,000 worshipers at one time. And really the pinnacle of it, put aside the fact that there is gold and marble and precious stones, Swarovski crystals in their three enormous chandeliers. I think the third largest in the world is housed in this building. Put all of that aside. I think the, the epitome, the crown of this, um, this building is on a wall where the 99 names of Allah are etched in calligraphy. Uh, again, in marble and in precious stone. The 99 names of Allah. These 99 names of Allah describe his attributes his goodness, his awesomeness, his grandness. But for the Muslim person, for all of the grandeur and the, all of the awe of all that you could know about Allah, you cannot know him. For all of the grandeur and all of the awe and all of the pomposity, Allah is cold and Allah is distant. We have a God who desires to reveal himself to us. He wants to be known personally. He is not unknowable. He is not aloof and somewhere out there. He is right here, and he is as near to you as you are to your own soul. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 23, tells us and shows us finally that Jesus is the giver of eternal life. 
And Jesus is the one who can show us who God is. Jesus is the one who can reveal to us who God is truly and completely. If you listen to the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, he says, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. John echoes this as well. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the Son of God, the exact imprint of the nature of the Father. The Son of God is a theme of the Gospel of John. It's a theme for the Apostle John who wrote this gospel, he wrote a number of epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and also the book of Revelation. And this title, Son of God, you can see it all over the place. John wants you to know that Jesus is a Son of God in a way that is unique, that he is equal in essence to God. We see this in John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John wants to convince us of this fact for us to believe, to put our active faith and trust in God. In in chapter 14, verse 9, we see that for Jesus, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus reveals fully the Father to everyone, to all of us. And lastly, in John 17, 2, he says, you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So Jesus is the authority from the Father and represent him, represents him perfectly in the world. And all of this is to say that God has revealed to himself to us as a person. He has revealed himself to us as a person. This is a big deal, guys, that the word became flesh. Just, um, just think for a moment that, that God in, again, perfect co-unity, perfect love and intimacy uh, and affection for one another, that he left that. He left that and he, he took on flesh so that we could know him so that he could be nearer to us and personal to us. God wants you to know him personally. God wants to be known personally, but he wants you to know him personally. Now, friends, to know God is to enjoy God. You cannot enjoy God without knowing him. And once you know him, man, you better believe you are going to enjoy him. And if you enjoy God, you are enjoying a person. Not an idea, not a pattern of behaving, not something that is out there, but a person, a person just like you have a person sitting beside you or near you right now. God can be enjoyed as a person. And he has given us a bit of that here, that we can enjoy each other. We can enjoy one another in our personal relationships because he has created us in his image, because he has put a little piece of himself in us. And so we can enjoy one another, and in enjoying one another, it approximates our enjoyment of him. We will never enjoy him perfectly in this life. But in enjoying one another, we can know what it is to enjoy God. Now, my most intimate and personal relationship on this earth is with my wife, with my wife, Grace. Now, I'm going to describe to you what it is for me to enjoy her a little bit. All right, so if I get a bit emotional, forgive me. But I enjoy Grace, I enjoy her 
physically, I enjoy her intellectually, I enjoy her emotionally, I enjoy her spiritually. And it's not because of what she does for me. I don't enjoy her because, you know, she makes breakfast for me or whatever the other things that she does for me. I don't enjoy her because of those things. I don't enjoy her simply because of the way she makes me feel. Yeah, she makes me feel a lot of things, but that's not the reason I enjoy her. The, the way and the reason I enjoy her is simply because of who she is. Because of who she is. I think about her compassion for the broken, and it brings joy to my heart, and I delight in that, and I, and I enjoy her for that. I think about the selflessness that she is when it comes to being a mother and how she gives of herself. I, I think about, um, and I enjoy her for the, the fact that she is willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel and the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of these, um, all of these things that make up who she is is the reason that I enjoy her. I, the fact that she's sensitive to the spirit of God, that she listens and she follows and she obeys, all of these things lead me to love her and to enjoy her for who she is. We've known each other for over 20 years. We've been married for, for over 15 now. And sometimes I'll look at her from across the room. And even now, my, my heart will just leap out of my chest because I think, wow, I, I belong to her and she belongs to me. Sometimes the sound of her laughter just, um, the sound of her laughter just fills my, fills my heart and my soul with, with life and with longing. And I can, go, I can go on and on. You know what, I'll go one more. Sometimes I just want to be near her. It just comes out of nowhere. I'll just be on my own and I'll think, man, I just, I wish I was near her. I just, for my hand to brush against hers, for my head to rest upon her, to enjoy her. And that's just an earthly relationship. That's a, a, just a poor reflection of what it means that we can enjoy God as a person. And I don't know about you, maybe, maybe you guys are you know, even further along than I am when it comes to enjoying God, but for me, it's, sometimes it's just waking up in the morning and just knowing that God is there and just speaking to him and just taking some time to express my love for him and, and, and to listen to what he has to say to me in that moment. Now, I, I'm not saying that I know how to do this well or, or even, you know, completely or even well. But there is an enjoyment of God that we can all experience here and now because God wants to make himself known to you in a personal way. And so I want you to think about this. I'm going to quote from uh, John Piper who writes about this. Um, he says this. He says, think about the kindest person that you know. Think about the most loving person. It doesn't have to be the same person, okay? Think about the kindest person, the most loving person, the wisest person, the most patient person, the most intelligent person, the strongest person, the most tender-hearted person, the happiest person, the most peaceful person, the most optimistic person, the meekest person, the most courageous person, the most articulate person, the person with the best sense of humor, the most generous person. Think about what it is like to enjoy these persons when their personalities are at their best. Then, 
Combine all the good traits of all of these persons into one person. And then increase those traits to perfection in quality and to infinite beauty in how they are proportioned and exercised. And then let all the enjoyment of all of those persons for all of those personal personal excellencies heighten to perfection, give you some hint of what it will be like to enjoy God fully. And then pray that the Holy Spirit would grant this miracle to happen. We might not ever enjoy God perfectly and fully in this life, but we can come to it when we understand and when we come to know him as a person. So we've talked about the gift of eternal life. We've talked about Jesus as the giver, the gift and the giver. But I think what we've come to discover at the end of all this is not that we have a gift and a giver, but the gift is the giver. That the true gift that we have been given is the giver himself, God, his son Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna end with the words of our, uh, our founder, the founder of the denomination of which Baby Gwen Church is a part, the Christian and Missionary Alliance. His name is A.B. Simpson, and he was a prolific hymn writer. Not all of them were good hymns, but he wrote a lot of them. And he wrote this in a hymn called Himself. A.B. Simpson had an experience of Jesus Christ in a very profound way. And he wrote these words. He says, once it was the blessing, now it is the Lord. Once it was the feeling, and now it is his word. Once his gift I wanted, now the giver own. Once I sought for healing, now himself alone. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father in heaven, what a beautiful and precious and inspiring gift you have given us. Eternal life, life in abundance, life in all its fullness. But at the end for us to discover, it is not simply the life that is saved ourselves, but life with you. You yourself are the gift. And so, God, our hearts are full today, and we thank you and praise you for that. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, for those who have received this gift, that they would be reminded of that day, that we're reminded of the joy there is in knowing you. And if there is anyone sitting here, God, who does not yet know you, who have not received that gift, would you open their hearts, Lord, so that they could become part of your life and part of your family. God, we're just grateful for you for who you are. God, would you teach us how to enjoy you? Would you show us your face in a new and fresh way today that we might know you more personally, more deeply, so that we could worship and glorify and enjoy you? In Jesus' name we pray.